0: Welcome back to our New Testament survey. We're working our way through the books of the New Testament, uh, looking at each book in turn uh, to see what and discern what its uh, main point and purpose is in the canon of Scripture uh, and how it relates to the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, This evening we find ourselves in the Epistle of James So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to James near the end of the New Testament. Uh, Now James uh, obviously gets its name from the author of the book uh, who identifies himself in verse 1 as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Most New Testament scholars will attribute uh, this to James, the half-brother of Christ, who we also see as a leader in the church. Uh, In Acts chapter 21, and he's mentioned in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia as well. Uh, So we see James, uh, Christ's half brother, who was uh, presumably one of those mentioned in the gospel when his family would come out and, and Think that he was out of his mind for the things that he was saying, but at some point James comes to a knowledge of the truth and accepts that uh, Jesus is in fact the Messiah, Uh, and so he becomes a believer. He takes on an active role in the church there in Jerusalem, Uh, by all accounts, is a a pastor, an elder at the church in Jerusalem, and a leader uh, of the movement of Christianity uh, from Jerusalem and, and throughout Judea and Samaria. And so He takes this role, and so he writes this letter. Now, this letter is uh, dated very, very early on uh, in the New Testament. This letter, along with the letter to the Galatians, are probably the two earliest uh, books of the New Testament to be written, uh, possibly sometime between A.D. 45 and 50, so very, very early in the life of the New Testament church James, obviously, is a Jew who's living in Jerusalem. Uh, He has a Jewish orientation, and the letter uh, does to some extent as well. He addresses it here at the beginning to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, uh, some would take this to mean that he's writing to those who were scattered after the persecution of Stephen uh, there in the book of Acts, but uh, it seems to be even a broader Uh, category than that. He seems to be writing to believers who at this point in the life of the church would have been largely Jewish who are scattered throughout the nations. If you remember at Pentecost, Jews had come from all over the world uh, to be in Jerusalem for the feast. They heard the gospel. They heard the message uh, being proclaimed by the disciples there, and many of them were saved. Many of them stayed there, but when the church was scattered, Uh, Because of the persecution of Stephen, it was scattered into Judea and Samaria, but presumably a lot of those may have gone beyond those uh, boundaries back to their homes, wherever they were uh, within the Roman Empire. And so you would have Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire now uh, early on, and they're looking for some guidance. And uh, now we're, we're Jews who have now embraced Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and so how does that change things for us? How are we to live our lives, and so this seems to be james 's primary audience. Of course, there would even at this early stage be some Gentiles mixed in uh, with those believing jews, and so it 's kind of the reverse. Uh, similar to Hebrews, the reverse of many of Paul's letters, which were primarily addressed to Gentiles, though there would have been Jews in those churches as well. So it's a mixed audience, but primarily Jewish. And so um, we'll see a lot of references to the Old Testament uh, and allusions because he's picking up on Old Testament language he expects his readers to be familiar with. There's no reference here to uh, the Judaizers that we see mentioned so often in Paul's letters, Uh, indicating that this letter may have been written prior to uh, those events uh, of Acts uh, chapter 15, the the Jerusalem Council and stuff like that. This could have been a very early letter, uh, possibly written before the letter to Galatians even. We do see a mention of a synagogue uh, in chapter 2. So it's possible that um, James is, is... considering that these Jewish Christians who spread back to their homes... Would be going to worship in the synagogue. Their habit had been, uh, and so they continued to worship God, but now they're worshiping Jesus as the Christ. And so it's very early in the life of the church. Uh, And so that's kind of the occasion for him writing the letter. He's writing to these Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and beginning to face some trials and some persecution because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And so James is writing uh, to them to instruct them and how. They are to live, how they are to deal with these trials and how they are to live. Now, it's interesting uh, when we come to the book of James, we've worked our way through Paul's letters to the churches, uh, and then we looked at the pastoral epistles that were Paul's letters written to pastors, uh, and then uh, we looked at Hebrews, which was kind of in a category of its own. James is considered the first of what. Uh, historically, have been known as the Catholic epistles; uh, more commonly nowadays, just called the General epistles. It Has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It just means these were letters that were written to the church at broad, not to any particular individual or particular congregation. Uh, James would be the first of those. Uh, first and second Peter obviously would fall into that category as well. Some people would place. Uh, all three of John's letters in that category. Some wouldn't, depending on uh, some issues that we'll deal with when we look at those letters, Uh, but Jude also would fall in this category. So it's the first of these general epistles, but James is unique in the New Testament because uh, the nature of his letter picks up on a literary type that we see in the Old Testament that we uh, don't see a lot of in the New Testament. We see some of it in Christ's teaching, uh, in the parables and things like that, but this would be the category of wisdom literature. And so we think about the Old Testament, uh, particularly Job, Psalms, Proverbs primarily, uh, wisdom literature, w- wisdom literature that is teaching us, instructing us in how to make wise choices in life, how to live wisely as God's people. And that seems to be James' primary intent as he writes the letter, and so it kind of picks up uh, that flavor as he writes, and we will see that James talks about wisdom a great deal uh, as he writes Uh, As far as themes go, wisdom would be uh, one of the primary ones. Of course, the other ones would be faith and works, uh, which are two of the things that uh, James is well known for when we look at the book of James. Uh, if, If I was to outline this, I would try and just keep it simple in the five chapters. Chapter one, I would call it testing of our faith. Chapter two would be faith and works. Chapter three would be wisdom and our tongue. Chapter four would be coming out of spiritual exile in chapter 5 would be closing admonitions. Uh, And chapters 4 and 5 really are closely related, just giving us general categories of how to live wisely. But uh, we'll deal with those when we get there. So verse 1, obviously, as we've seen, uh, attributed to James, addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, And then Uh, He gives them a greeting, and then he jumps right into it in verse 2 and says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Uh, So he doesn't specify what kind of trials. He just says various trials, which leaves it pretty broad, uh, which gives us that impression of this is kind of wisdom literature. He's not addressing a specific issue, so to speak. He's just addressing life in general. Uh, And so he says that trials are a cause for joy, not for discouragement. Uh, So this obviously falls into the category of wisdom, The wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man because our natural instinct would be as we're going through trial not to find joy in them but to be discouraged by them, uh, to to be demotivated, to want to quit whatever we're doing that's bringing us this trial. And so James says, no, trials are a cause for joy. We are to count it all joy. And then he gives us uh, four reasons why we should count trials as joy in our life. And so the first one uh, we see in verses three and four, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Uh, So we see this language of perfect and complete, uh, which we have recently talked about uh, in our sermon series in Genesis Uh, On Sunday mornings, when we looked at and compared and contrasted Jacob and Esau, we saw that Jacob was described as being perfect or complete, mature, and Esau was immature. And so James is telling us that trials are one path to Christian maturity. Uh, that when we experience trials, uh, they grow us in our faith so that we reach maturity in Christ. And, and if we think about Paul's letters, this was a big focus in many of Paul's letters. That his purpose as an apostle was to disciple people and to present them mature, complete in Christ Jesus. And so James is telling us one of the ways that we can grow in our faith is to experience trials. But he then goes on in verse 5 through 8 to give us the second reason why uh, trials are a source of joy for us. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So uh, the point here is is that trials uh, expend our strength. When we face various sorts of trials, whether it's persecution, whether it's sickness or whatever it is, we come to the end of ourself. That's why it's a trial, because it, it expends our strength. Uh, our wisdom is expended. We don't know how to fix it. Uh, we can't power through it. And so what happens is, is believers, is that we are forced at that point to turn to God for what we lack in our own lives. And so it's brought us to the end of ourselves and caused us to turn to Christ, turn to God in dependence. Uh, and so if we think about the nature of sin in and of itself, uh, think back to Genesis 3 when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin. What was the temptation? The temptation was... You will be like God. So the temptation was to turn away from God to ourselves, to our own wisdom, to our own strength, and think that that is enough. Uh, Faith shows us, wisdom teaches us, uh, that it is not enough and that we must turn to God for wisdom. And so James is telling us that trials should bring us joy as believers because it forces us to do that, to turn from ourselves and to turn towards God in dependence upon him. Thirdly, uh, trials are a source of joy because uh, he says in verse 9, "...let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation." Because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. And then he goes on uh, to develop this idea that uh, the same thing that I say every Sunday after I finish reading uh, the text that I'm preaching, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, And if you go back and look at that text in Isaiah, the grass and the flowers are us. Uh, Men are as grass as the flowers. We wither, we fade away. James is saying the same thing here, that uh, life is fleeting, uh, but there is an eternal reward. He says in verse 12, "'Blessed is the man who endures temptation, "'for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life.'" which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So uh, life in this world in which we experience these trials uh, is fleeting and brief. But if we endure, there is a crown uh, that we will receive, a crown of life, a reward that we will receive. Now, uh, James is, as I said, picking up on some Old Testament language here. In the book of Daniel, at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel is told this. He says at the very end, the last two verses of the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Uh, And so James is saying something very similar. He's using very similar language. If you look at the Greek translation of Daniel and compare it uh, to James chapter 1, verse 12, the the wording is very, very similar. Daniel is being encouraged at the end of his letter that there is a reward awaiting him at the end of days uh, for faithfulness. And James is telling believers the same thing, that if we endure trials in this life, uh, we can endure them with joy knowing that there is a reward uh, awaiting us uh, in glory. The other thing that Daniel uh, says there in chapter 12 at the end of his book uh, is this, Daniel 12, 1-3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Uh, So Daniel here is talking about resurrection uh, at the end of time, uh, the resurrection of the saints. Some of those who are resurrected will endure everlasting contempt. That's the unbelievers, and some who are wise, will shine and will receive an eternal reward. So James is picking up on that same kind of language, uh, and by echoing that language, he's telling his readers that they are facing end-time troubles, and we've seen that throughout uh, the other letters of the New Testament, that the New Testament authors are constantly telling their readers, we are in the end times from Christ's ascension to his return. These are the end times. And so James is saying, you're experiencing these trials that Daniel spoke of and there is a reward waiting just as was promised to Daniel. So these trials should be a source of joy for you if you endure. And then lastly he tells us that trials are a source of joy for us because they are a part of God's good purpose to sanctify us. And so he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So he says that temptation to evil is not the work of God. It's not from God, but it comes from our own desires. um, And it brings about its own maturity, its own completeness just as trials will bring us to completeness in the faith, completeness and maturity in Christ, if we don't endure those trials, if we give in to sin, it will bring about the completeness of death. And if we think back again to Genesis chapter 3, that is exactly what God told Adam, that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the result of sin. Uh, So James is again picking up on that language there. But then he, he, he talks about, Uh, In verse 16, 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Well, obviously not temptation to sin. That doesn't come from God. What does come from God, by implication, it's the trials that bring us to completeness. These are good gifts, perfect gifts from above that come down from the Father of lights. Uh, And so there he's alluding back to uh, Genesis again. God created light by the power of his word. Uh, And so then James says, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So just as he brought the sun and the moon and the stars forth by his word in in Genesis, he brought us forth, uh, born anew by the power, by the power of his word, the word of truth, which is the scriptures, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, So he's telling us that trials are good gifts from God to be received with joy because they bring us to completion. We're the first fruits of the new creation, and they bring us to completion, which is Christ-likeness. That's what Paul tells us so many times in his letter. So believers are the first fruits of the new creation. And James will pick up on this idea again later in the book that Uh, this idea that we are in the new creation, this already-not-yet sort of concept. So then in the the second half of the book, beginning in verse 19, we see James begin to apply this. He says, so then, in verse 21, therefore, uh, so because we are a new creation brought forth by the word of truth, which is God's word, uh, we must be careful how we use our words. Uh, so, so he says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Uh, in verse 21, he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, that's an abundance of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Very similar language to what Paul told Timothy. Uh, that it is the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation is what Paul had told Timothy. Uh, James here says the same thing. But he's telling us uh, that we are born anew as first fruits of the new creation by the power of God's word and that we are to continue to rely on that word uh, for wisdom to live life. He then tells us that because we've been made new, We are to be slow to swift to hear and slow to speak. Uh, We are to lay aside filthiness and abundance of wickedness. Uh, We are to live differently then. Uh, We are to be, he says in verse 22, doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So we are to do the word and that is to be swift to hear and slow to speak. Now, this is a theme that James will continue throughout the letter, um, this idea of our tongue and the words that we speak and the importance of them. And, of course, if we go back and read the book of Proverbs, uh, we would see uh, that that is a theme that runs throughout the book of Proverbs as well, uh, the importance of our words and, and watching what we do with our words. Uh, But he's saying that we will, uh, the word, the the law of God will sanctify us if we truly believe it. He says in verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So if we look into the scriptures uh, and we believe it and we actually obey it, Uh, then we will be sanctified we will reach that completeness maturity in christ he tells us in verse 23 that scripture is like a mirror uh, that we are to look into and use it to root out our sins we're to look in it and actually see ourselves in the light of scripture's truth and to be sanctified therein by obeying it and then he gives us uh, an example Uh, In verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So his example is uh, that we need to keep a bridle on our tongue. We need to control what comes out of our mouth. And again, this is a theme that he will develop later uh, in the book. In verse 27, he then says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So he makes the point that there are two aspects uh, to uh, actually being doers of the word, and that is serving others, widows and orphans, and keeping yourself unspotted from the world, of course, which is a reference back to verses 19 and 21, in which he told us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and to set aside uh, the filthiness abundance of wickedness, which we find in our own hearts. In chapter 2, he then begins to develop this theme of faith and works, Uh, and so he begins with the idea of avoiding favoritism. All of chapter 2 really could be considered a development of chapter 1, verse 22, "...be doers of the word and not hearers only." Uh, and so he's giving us some examples of what that would look like. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, that's an interesting phrase, the Lord of glory. Uh, it's only used one other place in the New Testament, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, but it casts our minds back to Proverbs chapter 24, uh, not Proverbs, Psalm chapter 24. And this would be a familiar psalm, I'm sure, to all of us. Chapter 24 of of the book of Psalms, uh, where he begins to speak and he says, um, beginning in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Uh, And he continues through that. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so here, uh, James identifies Christ as the Lord of glory. And so he tells us that we are to hold the faith, and he's not talking about uh, our personal belief, but when he says the faith, he's talking about the Christian religion, the doctrines of the faith, uh, what we believe as Christians should result in action. Uh, and one of those actions that he uses as an example is uh, that we should not hold the faith with partiality. And that is that we should not show favoritism Uh, particularly then uses the example in the gathering of the church that we should not not show favoritism to those who are wealthy over those who are poor. We shouldn't give them the best seats. We shouldn't treat them special and treat the poor as less than uh, just because they're poor. Uh, He tells us in verse 4, he says, "'Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts?' Uh, Judges with evil thoughts is not a good thing. If we are supposed to be growing in maturity and Christ-likeness, Christ is a judge who is a righteous judge, not a judge with evil thoughts. Uh, In verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well. Well, he's quoting there from Leviticus 19, 18. And of course, this is the same text that Jesus himself and Paul uh, quote as a summary of the law. Uh, and so he tells us uh, that we would do well uh, to love our neighbor as ourself and to not show partiality within the church. Uh, and we could show partiality for any number of reasons. James chooses the example of someone who is wealthy, but we could show partiality to people because... Uh, we like their personality better than somebody else's or whatever the cause may be. Um, and so we're not to show this kind of partiality. In chapter 10, uh, in verse 10, I'm sorry, he then says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Here he's summarizing the teaching of Deuteronomy 27:26, which tells us that same thing. He then goes on to quote two out of the Ten Commandments uh, and use them as an example. Uh, do not commit adultery, do not murder, he says, "If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you're guilty of violating the entire law uh, and so you don't get you don't get graded on a curve you, you don't get eighty percent as a passing grade no if you break one commandment you have broken them all he says in verse twelve, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty now when he says law of liberty he's not talking about something other than uh, the law of God, because this is the same phrase that he used in verse 25 of chapter 1, telling us to look into the perfect law of liberty and continue in it. And by that, he meant the scriptures. So uh, he's telling us that the scriptures will judge us, if we, uh, so we should speak and we should act as those knowing that the scriptures are the standard. We're not the standard. We don't get to establish the standard. Uh, And he'll uh, talk about this more here in a little bit. But uh, that's the idea, that the scripture is the standard, and so we should um, act as if we understood that. Verse 13, he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Uh, He's alluding there to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13, which says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Uh, So James is saying the same thing. If we show partiality to the rich and not to the poor, uh, we're violating the law of God uh, and we will not be shown mercy but will be judged for our sin. Uh, Mercy triumphs over judgment, he says. Now he goes on uh, to talk about um, faith without works at this point, but Uh, The idea here is that wise living means putting our faith into action in the life of the church by treating everyone equally uh, within the congregation. Now in verses 14 through 26, he'll develop this idea of faith and works and that they, they live together. This is probably the most problematic section of James's letter. Uh, it's very often misunderstood and thought to be in opposition to much of Paul's teaching, but we'll see that it is not. James says that faith and works go together and he gives us three examples. One negative example, two positive ones. So in verse 19, Uh, He gives us the negative example. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, The demons obviously don't obey. They know the truth intellectually. They know that there there is a God, they know who he is, they know that Christ is God, but they do not obey him. They don't submit themselves to him. So that knowledge doesn't do them any good. So if your faith consists only of knowledge, It's worthless. It's dead faith, James says. But then he gives us two positive examples. In verse 21, he talks about Abraham uh, when he offered Isaac uh, on the mountain. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now interestingly, if we go back to Hebrews, which we just looked at, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 speaks of this incident and says that it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac on the mountain. So it wasn't faith apart from works, and it wasn't works apart from faith. It was faith and works together, living together uh, in this action. He then offers us the example of Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Well, again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, says that it was by faith that Rahab Harbored those Hebrew spies. And so both of those cases, their works flowed from their faith. It was faith that moved them to do the works. So if we look at chapter 2, verse 24, uh, James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now the problem comes Uh, when we consider the writings of the Apostle Paul, who said things like this, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or apart from works. Uh, And so, Paul says faith apart from works. James says justified by works and not faith only. So he seems to be saying you're justified by faith and works. The problem is, That faith leads to works. Works prove our faith. In that sense, they justify our faith. And so we need to understand rightly what James is saying. J. Gresham Machen said this, As the faith which James condemns is different from the faith which Paul commends, so also the works which James commends are different from the works which Paul condemns. In other words, James is not telling us to do works of the law in order to be justified in God's sight. He's telling us, if you truly believe God, if you truly have faith, then you will live as a changed individual. You will live as part of the new creation, made new and growing in maturity, acting like Christ, our Savior. So he's telling us that we're not trying to earn our salvation, but to live our salvation out. Uh, and, And of course we know from other teaching in the New Testament, that there are some who will uh, have intellectual faith and yet be lost, right? Because it wasn't true faith. They didn't really believe. It didn't change the way they lived, and so it wasn't true faith. On the other hand, Christ clearly tells us that there will be some in the end who said, look at all the things I did for you. Look at all the good works I did, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you because those works were not motivated by faith but instead by an attempt to earn justification before God. So faith and works go together. Faith justifies us. Works justifies our faith as being true. In chapter 3, James then uh, begins to address this idea of speech and wisdom. Uh, he tells us uh, that how important our tongue is. And before we jump into that, I just want to read a collection of verses as an example Uh, We could go all through the book of Proverbs and highlight a bunch of this, but I'm just going to read some verses from Proverbs chapter 10, and then we'll look at what James has to say. Proverbs 10, verse 6 Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Verse 8 The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. Verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Verse 13. Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Verse 14. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Verse 18. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. Verse 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. And verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse So that's Proverbs. And and bear in mind verse 19 here. In the multitude of works, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Now look at James in chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Proverbs just told us. In a multitude of words, there is sin. Uh, So James is saying the same thing here. Uh, Our tongues, uh, teachers are going to be judged by a stricter standard, and teachers, unfortunately, have to talk a lot. And so when we talk a lot, we're prone to sin with our mouth. Uh, So we have to be careful and wise about our words. And then he gives us a couple of examples. In verse 3, he uses the example of a bit in a horse's mouth in order to control the horse. Uh, In verse 4, he uses the example of a rudder on a ship in order to turn the ship. And tells us in verse 8, "...but no man can tame the tongue." It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So we can't tame our tongue. We can tame a horse with a bit. We can tame a ship with a rudder. But taming our tongue uh, is difficult. Consider what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 15. When he says this, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. He's talking there about our words. The things that we say with our mouth reflects the sin that is in our heart. Uh, And so James is saying the same thing. He says in verse 9, with it, that is our tongue, we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. So It proves our sinfulness because of our hypocrisy. We bless God and with the same mouth we curse other people, people who are made in the image of God and we say evil things about them. Uh, We speak hateful things to them or about them to others. We slander them to others, which James has already mentioned, slander. If our faith is true, it produces good works and the first among them would be the taming of our tongue, that we would keep a close watch on the words that come out of our mouths. In verse 15, he says, um, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Well, what wisdom is that? It's the wisdom of bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, boasting and lying against the truth. And so uh, that sort of thing reflects demonic wisdom, not heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, he says in verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. So he's telling us that uh, wisdom that comes from God would be pure, meaning our speech would be pure, the things we say would be pure, they would make for peace, they would be gentle rather than harsh with other people, we would be willing to yield, full of mercy, which he's already talked about mercy and judgment and good fruits, without partiality, which he spent the first half of chapter 2 warning us against, and without hypocrisy, and he has just warned us of the hypocrisy that can come when we bless God with one side of our mouth and then out of the other side of our mouth speak evil of our neighbor. Uh, So wisdom from above would help us guard our tongues. G.K. Beale uh, says God's heavenly wisdom provides the framework for all of Christian living. Uh, So James, in the sense of being wisdom literature here, is telling us how to live as Christians. He's telling us how we are to live in the midst of this world in which we face trials and temptations and have to live together as God's people. And one of the things that we need to be careful about is our words. In chapter 4, James then begins to speak more broadly and generally about uh, wise living. And as we consider Adam's sin... When Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the garden. They were kicked out of God's presence. Uh, they were sc- scattered abroad, to use James's term from chapter 1. So in the new creation, we're coming out of that exile, uh, heading towards our eternal home. We will once again dwell with God. And the church is being made into a temple in which God dwells by his spirit. So we're beginning to come out of that spiritual exile. But it happens in two stages. Uh, it is Now our personal redemption, our sanctification over the course of our life and when Christ returns, we'll experience glorification and the consummation of the kingdom. And so James begins to tell us how we are to live in the midst of this already not yet as we come out of spiritual exile, what is our life going to be like? And he warns us in verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Among you, he's writing to Christians are gathered together into communities of faith, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So unfortunately, uh, we find ourselves in that situation that Paul describes in his letter to the Romans in chapter seven, that uh, we have been born anew Uh, We have the spirit of God living in us, and yet we still have our old sin nature dwelling within us as well. James has warned us that uh, we are tempted when we are led away by our own desires. And now he tells us that strife uh, in the midst of the church comes because of that old nature that we are at war with. So there's a spiritual war that we are fighting against our old nature. He says in verse 2, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now I don't know. I mean, it's possible that some of these early Christians were killing each other. I kind of doubt it. So when he accuses them of murder, I think he's using the same sort of uh, understanding of the commandment that Jesus explains to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you have murdered him. You have committed the crime of murder. You've broken the commandment. And so James is saying this strife that happens amongst believers, this contention that happens, uh, is because of our sin, and we need to, as he said earlier, ask God for wisdom, for right living, uh, and we don't ask for it. We don't receive it because we ask incorrectly, uh, desiring to spend it on our own uh, desires. In verse 4, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses, uh, which is pretty harsh language. Again, I don't think he's accusing them of committing adultery on their spouse. I think he's accusing them of committing adultery against God. I think he's using the same sort of accusation that we see in Hosea chapter 2, spiritual adultery against God, covenant unfaithfulness. Uh, he's saying, if you really have genuine faith that will show itself in your actions, then you would not behave in these ways in verse 6, he says uh, that in the midst of this war that we're fighting, we don't want to be set ourselves at odds against God, uh, but he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here James is quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, uh, which says the same thing. And so he's telling us uh, that we need to humble ourselves and look for God's grace in our lives and and not side with the world and make ourselves an enemy of God, as he said in verse 4. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, because this is the situation, because we find ourselves in this spiritual war against our old nature, uh, we are to submit to God and resist the devil. So we're not to resist God and submit to the devil. We are to submit to God and resist the devil, uh, and he will flee from you. We are to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's a whole bunch of Old Testament language being used here in verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He is e- either quoting to or summarizing here Zechariah one three, Isaiah 1.16, Jeremiah 4.14, and Proverbs 14.13. Uh, And so he's telling us we need to to humble ourselves to seek to draw near to God, uh, not to submit ourselves to Satan and to the temptation to sin, but to fight that spiritual battle against our sin. And that if we do so, God will draw near to us. And so he tells us this language that he's using, drawing near to God, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, uh, these are things that resemble the work of the priests in the Old Testament, drawing near to God in the temple, (laughs) cleansing themselves before they go in, purifying themselves. Uh, He's using a lot of that language there, that temple sort of language. Uh, In verse 11, he says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. So we're back to uh, our speech, our words again. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And so he's telling us God is the judge, not us. We don't get to decide what is good and evil. We don't get to decide what the standard is. God does. It kind of reminds us again of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve uh, wanting to determine for themselves apart from God what was right and wrong. They wanted to know, have that knowledge of good and evil. Uh, James says that's not for us. God is the one who sets the standards. Uh, His scripture is the standard that he has revealed to us. uh, So we don't get to judge apart from that. In verses 13 through 17, um, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Uh, And he's telling us that we shouldn't Uh, say that, but rather that we should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. He's building off of an idea that we can see in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, that says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Uh, So, We not only want to judge good and evil by our own standards, but we also want to act as if tomorrow was ours by right, as if we somehow already possessed tomorrow. And he tells us in verse 16 that that is arrogance and not humility. And yet he has told us God resists the proud gives grace to the humble in verse 6. So our time is fleeting. We don't know if we have tomorrow or not. We can't put off doing good today thinking that we'll do it later. Uh, We are to do it when we have the opportunity. That's what he tells us in verse 17. Because we don't know if we'll be able to do it later or not. In chapter 5, he then uh, continues with some more instructions for wise living. And he begins chapter 5 with this section that resembles uh, passages in the Old Testament and the prophets that we might see that begin with woe to a particular uh, country or, or people group. Uh, these passages uh, are pronouncing God's judgment on those groups and James here is pronouncing judgment against the unjust rich who take advantage of the poor. He's probably not talking about church members at this point. Uh, he's meaning to encourage the church members that God sees their trials and will execute righteous judgment in the end. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 28 says, "He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage." And so James is pronouncing these Uh, This woe passage against the rich, Uh, they're corrupt, their garments are moth-eaten, their gold and silver are corroded. This kind of casts our mind back to some of Jesus' teaching. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do steal um, and corrupt, but lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. James says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days here on earth. Uh, speaking to these rich people. In verse 4, he accuses them of having taken advantage of the poor but assures them that the cries of the poor that they have taken advantage of have reached God's ears and that while they have lived uh, here on earth in pleasure and luxury, um, there is a day coming when they will be judged by the just God um, who will render justice. So therefore, he says in verse 7, (coughs) Because God will judge, believers must patiently endure until Christ returns. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So again, this idea that we're in the last times or in the end times, patiently wait for the coming of the Lord, which is at hand. It is soon. He tells us in verse nine, not to grumble against one another, uh, lest we be condemned, for behold, the judge is standing at the door. So we're not to grumble against one another. Again, he's talking about behavior within the church. Uh, If we are to live wisely, if we are to live out our faith and be doers of the word, uh, then we're we're to watch our words again, not grumbling against one another, behind one another's backs. Uh, In verse 11, he says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure and have heard of the perseverance of Job. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So if we think about the story of Job, uh, Job endured to the end and God blessed him uh, with more than he had at the beginning. And so that's James' idea here, is that the end is at hand. Endure these earthly trials and when the end comes, God will bless you with a reward that is greater uh, than whatever you may have given up in this life in order to endure. He tells us in verse 12 that we are to be people of our word, trustworthy and acting with integrity. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or the earth, by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, lest you fall into judgment. So don't make people have to enact some sort of oath out of you in order to get you to do what you said you would do. If you said you would do it, do it. You don't have to swear an oath, and if you didn't swear the oath, then they can't trust you. Uh, That would not reflect that we are actually living out our faith. In verses 13 through 18, uh, he then tells us that we are to pray, to sing psalms, to anoint the sick with oil, to confess sin, to receive forgiveness of sin. Again, these are all things that happen in the Old Testament in the context of the temple. Uh, And so the idea is that the church is the temple of the living God. Believers are priests of God, a kingdom of priests, Peter calls us. G.K. Beale again comments and says, As the true temple, God's people are also priests who are to rid themselves of all impurity and offer up spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise. Uh, Paul uses similar language in Romans chapter 12 that we are to uh, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so... Uh, then he tells us in verses 19 and 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So again, we see heavenly wisdom uh, being used to correct false teaching. So James even adds that in here at the end. And, you know, the idea of the book of James, he's told us how to understand and deal with trials in life how to live out our faith, and how to live at peace in the church by living wisely. It's, it's wisdom for practical living in the church uh, during times of trial and strife and struggle, during this already not yet that we experience of awaiting the return of Christ. And he warns us here at the end that the judge is at the door, and so we are to live wisely in his sight as his children so that our faith will actually be proven to be real. Let's pray.